Please open your Bibles to Second Chronicles chapter 8. Tonight we will study the chapter. You'll find the text on the back of your worship bulletin. Listen now to God's holy, inerrant, and life-giving word, beginning at Second Chronicles chapter 8, verse 1. At the end of 20 years, in which Solomon had built the house of the Lord and his own house, Solomon rebuilt the cities that Hiram had given to him and settled the people of Israel in them. And Solomon went to Hamath Zobah and took it. He built Tadmor in the wilderness and all the store cities that he built in Hamath. He also built Upper Beth Horon and Lower Beth Horon, fortified, fortified cities with walls, gates, and bars. And Balath and all the store cities that Solomon had, and all the cities for his chariots, and the cities for his horsemen, and whatever Solomon desired to build in Jerusalem, in Lebanon, and in all the land of his dominion. All the people who were left of the Hittites, of the Amorites, of the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, who were not of Israel, from their descendants who were left after them in the land, whom the people of Israel had not destroyed, these Solomon drafted as, a, as forced labor, and so they are, to this day. But the people of Israel, Solomon made, of the people of Israel, Solomon made no slaves for his work. They were soldiers and his officers, the commanders of his chariots and his horsemen. And these were the chief officers of Solomon, of King Solomon, 250 who exercised authority over the people. Solomon brought Pharaoh's daughter up from the city of David to the house that he had built for her, for he said, My wife shall not live in the house of David, king of Israel. For the places to which the ark of the Lord has come are holy. Then Solomon offered up burnt offerings to the Lord on the altar of the Lord that he had built before the vestibule. As the duty of each day required offering according to the commandment of Moses for the Sabbaths, the new moons, and the three annual feasts, the feast of unleavened bread, the feast of weeks, and the feast of booze. According to the ruling of, his, of David, his father, he appointed the divisions of the priests for their service and the Levites for their offices of praise and ministry before the priests as the duty of each day required and the gatekeepers in the division, their divisions at each gate for David. So David, the man of God, had commanded. And they did not turn aside from what the king had commanded the priests and Levites concerning any matter and concerning the treasuries. Thus was accomplished all the work of Solomon from the day of the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid until it was finished. So the house of the Lord was completed. Then Solomon went to Ezion Geber and Eloth on the shore of the sea in the land of Edom. And Hiram sent to him by the hand of his servants ships and servants familiar with the sea. And they went to Ophir together with the servants of Solomon and brought from there 450 talents of gold and brought it. To King Solomon. The grass withers, the flowers fall, and the word of our God abides forever. Amen. Now, Father, we thank you of these tidings from of old and of the glory of Solomon and the building that he did. And, and we realize, Lord, that we are today the, the effects of what you did in those days. It's the same God of grace, your same faithfulness to your people, the same call to walk before you in truth. Bless us now in Christ as we consider these things, that we might be strengthened and made wise unto salvation. We pray in Christ's name, amen. 
Toward the end of Second Chronicles chapter 8, we read a statement that sums up the great achievement of Solomon's life, the account that began all the way back in chapter 2. It says in verse 16, so the house of the Lord was completed. Now, we might have expected that great final statement to have occurred much earlier, maybe back in chapter 5 when the building itself was built, or at least when the temple dedication service was completed in chapter 7. And yet a statement is being made by the chronicler as he assesses the true completion of the temple at the end of an account of the achievement of Solomon's reign in the years that followed. Now his point is that the temple was completed when the nation's life was established on a foundation of prayer and faith in the Lord. Gordon McConville writes, the chronicler only says the house of the Lord was completed when he has shown us that Solomon has provided for and exemplified its real and lasting use. Now, Second Solomon, or Second Chronicles 8 and 9 tell of Solomon's achievements, concluding his account, after he built the temple and the blessings that accrued to this nation whose trust was in the Lord. The passage begins with Solomon at about 40 years of age. Verse 1 says, at the end of 20 years in which Solomon had built the house of the Lord and his own house. Andrew Stewart comments, here we catch a glimpse of what is possible on earth when kings and kingdoms submit to the Lord God. Now it's noteworthy that Solomon's civic achievements occurred after he had laid the foundation for the kingship by building the royal palace and in building the temple for the people's worship of the Lord. In fact, what's really significant is that he built the temple first. Um, particularly people preaching through kings, where the note is he spent seven years building the temple and 13 years building the palace. They'll say, look, he spent more time on the palace than the temple. No, the point here is that he built the temple first. It was his priority. And so Solomon not only did the right things, he did them in the right order. First he built the Lord's house, then his palace, only then the military fortifications. In one of his own psalms, Psalm 127, he explains, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Solomon understood that all that he built rested on God's covenant grace. And so he first attended to the house of the Lord. Now, looking back five centuries later, that's when the chronicler's writing, 475 or so. Uh, five centuries later, he wants his own generation to show the same priorities. And prior to his time, the prophet Haggai had rebuked those Jews who had re- returned from Babylon to Jerusalem because they allowed the temple rebuilding to languish. Haggai 1, 7 and 8 says, Consider your ways, go up to the hills, and bring wood and build the house, that I may take pleasure in it, and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. And so to follow Solomon's example will require us to make sacrifices. If our priority is going to be on the Lord's things first, that's going to make real sacrifices in terms of worldly things. Instead of giving God only what is convenient to us, We will prioritize Lord's Day worship. We will tithe our income. We will use our gifts and time in the service of his kingdom. You see, by putting God first, Solomon proved the truth of Jesus saying, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Matthew 6, 33. 
Now, when Jesus spoke of God's kingdom and he and Solomon were thinking on the same page, having built the temple and then his royal palace, Solomon kept building. Second Chronicles 8 verses 2 to 10 highlights, first of all, Solomon's industry. That's what this first second shows, is industry in building up the dominion of God's people. God gave Adam and Eve a cultural mandate. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, Genesis 1, 28. And like Solomon, Christians are to be builders who work hard and skillfully through faith to build up godly families, to build businesses that do good, to build communities, and certainly to build churches through lives that are centered on the Lord. Now Solomon's building projects reveal his desire to provide two things for the nation, namely peace and prosperity. First, verse 2 says, he rebuilt the cities that Hiram had given to him and he settled the people of Israel in them. Now that brief statement refers to a slightly longer account back in 1 Kings 9, 11 to 14. And the scenario is this. Back when Solomon was still gathering the materials for building the temple, he gave Hiram of Tyre 20 cities in the land of Galilee. And, on, and on, for doing that, he received payment of 120 talents of gold, 1 Kings 9, 11 to 14. But we're told that when Hiram came and he actually looked at the cities in Galilee, they did not please him. And he said to Solomon, 1 Kings 9.13, What kind of cities are, you, are these that you have given to me, my brother? Well, now in 2 Chronicles 8, we see Solomon building up these very cities and settling Israelites in them. There's two likely explanations for what happened. Either Solomon simply kept them when Hiram didn't want the cities, Or, this is the more likely one, he had used these towns as collateral for a loan, the 120 talents, he has now paid back that loan and he is taking back control of the cities. Now I do think the second one is far more likely because it's hard to imagine Solomon permanently ceding precious land in the promised land that God had given them. The chronicler's point is that he did not leave them dilapidated and empty, but he built them up and he planted communities there. He was an industrious king building up the kingdom. Now verse 3 records the only known instance of Solomon waging war. It's just one statement. Solomon went to Hamath Zobah and he took it. And then we're told he built Tadmor in the wilderness and all the store cities that he built in Hamath. Verse 4. Now, Hamath and Zobah were actually territories on the trade route to Mesopotamia, and Solomon seems to have captured them and and combined them to form a single province. Now, their location is 120 miles north of Damascus. Now, that's to give us a sense of the scale of Solomon's kingdom. It, by the way, is the very dimensions that God had promised Abraham in Genesis 15, 18 to 21. And then after having built these provinces 120 miles north of Damascus, he then went northeast halfway between Damascus and Mesopotamia and he built the city, uh, the, the, the strategic uh, place of Tadmor. Now that's a spring on a very strategic site uh, dominating the eastern trade route. It's more famous by its Roman name, Palmyra. 
Palmyra was in the news recently because it has great Roman ruins and ISIS, when they captured this area, now in eastern Syria, they uh, systematically destroyed the Roman ruins. But that was the city Tadmor first established by Solomon. Now what he was doing by uh, establishing these fortified cities and storehouses, he was able to dominate the lucrative caravan route to the east. And then in time of war, he would use them to defend against incursions from that direction. Now, a little closer to home in verses 5 and 6, he also built Upper Beth Horon and Lower Beth Horon, fortified cities with walls, gates, and bars. Now, these fortresses are about two miles apart, and they are about 10 miles from Jerusalem. So this is much closer to home. And they controlled not the distant trade route to Mesopotamia, but rather the strategic road leading westward from the highlands of Judah. Jerusalem's on a mountain, a low mountain, that's the highlands. There's a road that goes westward to the Mediterranean Sea and the great northwest trade route that connects Africa to Asia, the great trunk road it's called today. And these two fortresses allowed him to control the road between Jerusalem and Judah and that coastal highway. Now again, Solomon is securing control of the trade routes and also of their revenues, as well as the main invasion routes into Israel. Now the location of the final city, Baloth, is uncertain today. Scholars suggest it may be the strategic city of Kiriath-Jerim. The point here is that Solomon was industrious in providing for the wealth and security of his people, just as godly rulers should do today. These storehouses housed his chariots and horsemen and funded whatever Solomon desired to build in Jerusalem, in Lebanon, in all the land of his dominion, verse 6. Now today, politicians promised prosperity and peace. Solomon actually delivered it through his industry. Now, his use, the use of the word here of dominion is significant because Solomon wasn't just building up his own royal house. He was a kingdom builder. And in doing that, he anticipated the Lord Jesus Christ. You do realize that Jesus came not only to die for your sins through faith, thank the Lord that he died for my sins through faith, but he also came to establish God's kingdom forever. When we pray, your kingdom come, we are imbibing the spirit of Solomon. Jesus reigns over a spiritual kingdom. Remember his insistence on that with Pontius Pilate. And therefore, he provides a spiritual prosperity and a spiritual security. That The prosperity is in the faith of his people. And reigning from the seat of power in heaven, Jesus secures for us eternal life with, dare I say, forces greater than Solomon's chariots. Daniel 7.14 exalts, His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. Well, how blessed was Israel in the dominion of great Solomon, but how much more blessed are we to find salvation in the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this means then that to be a Christian is not merely to exercise a private faith in an otherwise secular life. As Paul wrote in Colossians 1.13, that very important statement, we have been transferred into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. 
And therefore, we have the privilege of laboring together to advance the worldwide cause of Christ and his church. Instead of living primarily for worldly things, offering one day in seven for an hour or so of worship, a Christian should emulate the kingdom industry of Solomon. And we do that by sharing the gospel, by supporting the church, by using our gifts, time, and, and money for the work of the gospel. And for this reason, Paul exhorted the Thessalonians to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Now, as a, something of an aside, if you're familiar with Deuteronomy chapter 17 and verse 16, you may have raised an eyebrow when I mentioned from the text Solomon's chariots and horsemen because God in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 17 is the instructions given by Moses for the future days when there would be kings and kings were commanded not to acquire many horses for the nation's defense and here Solomon has many horses. In Psalm 20, verse 7, David said, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. And so it seems that in his kingdom-building industry, Solomon was led from solely trusting in the Lord. Now that is the perspective that shapes primarily the narrative of First Kings. Now, the chronicler, of course, knows about that situation. Kings is written long beforehand. It's very clear he, he, he refers to it, and there's, there's details from that. He knows his readers know that Solomon sinned against the Lord by building those chariot sources. But what he's doing in this book is he's emphasizing, he's presenting Solomon's life in a way that emphasizes his faith. His, his, the virtue that comes from his face, faith and God's blessing upon it, that's because he's trying to encourage the faith of his own people. I, I, I will probably often say, preaching through Second Chronicles, that the books of Kings ask the question, how did everything go wrong? Kings concludes in the fall of Jerusalem and the Babylonian exile. What accounts for this disaster? And Solomon plays quite a negative role in that in his later years. But the chronicler, writing after the exile, when the people had come back to the land, he's asking the question, will God show grace to us? Will he bless us by his grace if we trust him as those who trusted him before were blessed? And you see, from that perspective, he provides an idealized version of Solomon's faith and life, offering a picture that is really most accurate when it's directed towards its true object, the Lord Jesus. Now, a final note in this account describes the slave workforce that Solomon, shall we say, recruited from the Canaanites who were still living in the land centuries after the Israels had conquered Canaan in the time of Joshua. Verses 7 and 8 say, All the people who were left of the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites who were not of Israel, Solomon drafted as forced labor. Now the story is that after the great victories in the time of Joshua, when God exerted such mighty power like the falling of the fortress of Jericho, when that generation was over, the Lord told the tribes of Israel, now just clean up the rest there's pockets of Canaanites I've judged them you're supposed to finish the job that's what they were to do but they didn't have the zeal to doing that they got on with the business of business and the affairs of their own lives they never finished destroying these condemned people and so even in Solomon's day, there were pockets of these Canaanite settlements. We saw, if you know the story of David, he had to capture Jerusalem from the Jebusites. 
What Solomon did was he drafted them now as slave laborers, a practice that was nearly universal in the ancient world. Now the Israelites also worked hard, but not as slaves. Verse 9 says they were soldiers and his officers, the commanders of his chariots and his horsemen. And verse 10, 250 were the chief officers. Now, when we get to chapter 10 and we begin the reign of Solomon's son Rehoboam, we're going to discover that the Israelites weren't very happy about that. Solomon required them, we find, the Israelite people to work one month out of every three months on his state building projects. They considered this onerous, uh, 1 Kings 5.14 and 2 Chronicles 10.4. And yet here, the chronicler is emphasizing the freedom of God's people in comparison to those who reject and are outside of God's covenants. And his point is that Christians are not to serve in God's kingdom with a slave spirit. We're not only giving and doing only what we must, but rather showing the free industry of those who are citizens in the eternal kingdom, who are children of God, who Paul says in Romans 8, 17, are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. When we are doing the work of the kingdom of Christ through the church in the spread of the gospel, we're not doing somebody else's business. It's the family business. It's the, it's the, the labor that will yield a harvest for our Lord and for us in eternity. Well, first we have Solomon's industry. And she shows this in building the kingdom. But then the chronicler provides a brief note to highlight his piety. His piety. Now we see his reverence for God in the arrangements made for his Egyptian wife. Verse 11, Solomon brought Pharaoh's daughter up from the city of David to the house that he had built for her. For he said, my wife shall not live in the house of David, king of Israel. For the places to which the ark of the Lord has come are holy. Now, There was a warning sign with Solomon's chariots and horsemen, but let's say the light is flashing from yellow to red when we get to Pharaoh's daughter, the first of his 700 wives, many of them foreign, and will throw in his 300 concubines with that. And this is a direct violation of Exodus 34, verse 16, which specifically forbade the taking of foreign wives, I quote, lest they make your sons whore after their God. Now, some very generous writers argue that it's not so bad in this case because she must have been converted. That's a generous reading, but not one the Bible gives any support directly for. Uh, And in fact, the, the general port we have in Scripture... Uh, does not give that idea. We read in 1 Kings 11, verse 4, that when Solomon got older, he turned his heart, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not true to the Lord his God. That statement's made about his thousand wives in general, but this is his chief wife, and she's an Egyptian. Now, Andrew Stewart rightly points out that this violation of God's law, even if he could find some scruple for it, even say she, if she had been converted, was certainly would have been confusing to many godly Israelites. Those in leadership are to live and act for the benefit of God's people and to encourage them in their faith. Stuart writes, some may have followed him in disregarding God's command to marry only the Lord's people. So this was a grievous sin on Solomon's 
part. Now, again, the chronicler knows this happened. He knows the perspective given in 1 Kings, 1 Kings 11. That account is extraordinarily negative towards Solomon. It's a very important chapter. He knows his readers are aware about it. Uh, Here again, he's picking up God's blessing upon the piety that Solomon shows. Uh, Raymond Dillard observes as well that the the mighty pharaohs were not in the habit of marrying their daughters to non-Egyptians. They were on the receiving end of that almost every time. The fact that Pharaoh would give his daughter, and and we learn in 1 Kings, the chronicle leaves it out for perhaps similar reasons, uh, that he actually conquered a city and gave the city in Philistia to Solomon as the dowry for his wife. Pharaoh's going to quite lengths to, to impress Pharaoh. It illustrates the power and prestige of King Solomon. Now, the chronicler's main point is to highlight, at least in this middle phase, he's about 40 years old, the middle phase of his reign, that Solomon showed piety reverence for God in moving Pharaoh's daughter up from the city of David to the house that he built for her, verse 11. Now, because of the temple, the city of David, which includes Mount Zion, was consecrated ground. And Solomon may have started to become corrupt in his thinking. In fact, he clearly had been, but he still had enough reverence for the Ark of the Covenant that he would not permit, in fact, the whole point here is that she can't be where she's got to be unclean or else he wouldn't be doing this. He can't allow her and her pagan idols to coexist on the same ground as God's ark for the places to which the ark of the Lord has come are holy. Well, Solomon's example fell far short of perfection. Again, the chronicler is showing he showed piety and God accepted it and blessed, and blessed him for it. Our true example of piety comes from the Lord Jesus. We think of the reverence that Jesus showed for God's temple during his life on earth. When Jesus was a boy, one of the little vignettes we're told about Jesus' life as a boy is him slipping away from his family. They can't find him. Where's Jesus? He's at the temple, we're told. Luke 2, 46, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking questions. You see that Jesus knew that true piety saw God's house as a place for prayer and God's word. It is to be a place of reverence for worship to God in a, in a godly way, praying and teaching God's word. When, when his parents expressed concern because they did not know where he was, Jesus told his mother, did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Later, as an adult, Jesus came back to the temple and he found it cluttered with moneylenders and animal stalls. And we're told that he made a whip of cords and he drove them all out of the temple. He rebuked them, do not make my father's house a house of trade, John two fifteen to 16. And John looked back on that episode as fulfilling David's claim in Psalm 69, verse 9, zeal for your house will consume me. Well, Solomon showed some reverence. We are to reflect upon and uh, imitate the true reverence for God's house, for the church, not as something for worldly affairs, not something for personal advantage, not merely for social benefits and to make some good business connections. No, we come here to glorify God. We come here to pray. We come here for his word to be preached. Well, speaking of the temple, the chronicler continues thirdly by displaying Solomon's fidelity. He's shown his industry, his piety, now his fidelity in keeping God's commandments for the priestly service. 
And we're told in verses 12 to 13 that he personally made provision for the burnt offerings to the Lord on the altar of the Lord that he had built before the vestibule as the duty of each day required, offering according to the commandment of Moses. Now this indicates that Solomon personally attended these services, the daily, the weekly Sabbath, the monthly, the the new moon, the, the monthly sacrifices, and the feast time worship services. Now, you and I are living in a time when many Bible-believing church leaders do not seem to be aware, and I mean that generously, uh, they don't seem to be aware that the Bible still gives us clear instructions for the worship of God. Under the gospel, we're to worship. We're told in Hebrews 12 to worship with reverence. We find in Acts 2 that in the apostles, they were devoted to their teaching. There's to be a devotion to the careful teaching of the word of God. We are not left to our own devices for a worship service. And yet we are living in a time where the trend is for worldly preferences and styles to shape the worship. And the reason is for the desire to draw people for the, to the church. I think for the most part, with a sincere evangelism. We want the people of the world to come. So we, we in many cases, we perform surveys and find out what will make them come to church. We want them to come, and therefore we construct the worship in that worldly way. Well, Solomon knew better. Because what he does here is he carefully follows the word of the Lord concerning the worship that will take place at the temple. He follows the schedule of services laid down for Moses. There's the weekly Sabbath. There's the monthly new moon. There's the three annual feasts. The feasts, he he cites them. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Booze. The purpose of those feasts was, of course, to remind the people of God's great redemptive mights, his acts, his deeds, to save them primarily in the exodus. And then to give him thanks for the annual harvest, Exodus 23:14 and Leviticus 23. And these observances would have included the Passover that was part of the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Day of Atonement that followed the Feast of Booze, both of which pointed forward to the sacrificial blood the Lord would provide for the forgiveness of sins. And so Solomon was faithful in scrupulously observing the order given down by by Moses but but also the priestly instructions given by his father David verse 14 according to the ruling of David his father he appointed the divisions of the priests for their service and the Levites for their offices of praise and ministry before the priests as the duty of each day required and the gatekeepers in their division at the gate so David the man of God for so David the man of God had commanded now that little statement at the end David the man of God is citing him as a prophet you can find that language that very term being used particularly in the old testament histories for those in the prophetic office and that meant that the instructions in first chronicles david had worked it all out here's the different tribes and clans of the levites and here's what the priests are going to do they're going to stand here you're going to have this role you're going to have that role and he's saying this is the word of god it's not just david's good planning he is david the man of god and solomon upheld them He did not add to them or subtract from them according to his own whims or the people's preferences. He followed upon God's instructions knowing that they could not be improved. Now the extent of Solomon's faithfulness is highlighted in verse 15. And they did not turn aside from what the king had commanded the priests and Levites concerning any matter and concerning the treasuries. Solomon, you see, was careful to uphold and to put into practice 
all the worship instructions given by Israel's two greatest leaders, Moses and David. Now that faithfulness sets an example for pastors and elders today in that he, he not only followed God's instructions, but he made it clear to the people as they worshiped that they were doing it that way because he was following the teaching, the clear teaching of God's word governing those things. Christian leaders, faithful leaders, should never ever resent a, a church member who says, can you explain the biblical reason we're doing that? Always beware of someone who resents that. It's actually a true pastor's delight. I was hoping you were going to ask, because I can't just talk about it all the time. I try. But we, we do it for this reason. We do it for that reason. There's a biblical basis for what we're doing, and we want the people to have confidence in their worship, in the ministries of the church, that God will bless them because we are doing them according to God's word. That's the example that Solomon set. And of course, God is honored and the people are encouraged in their faith and worship and other leaders are inspired to follow suit. Matthew Henry summarizes, Solomon, though a wise and great man and the builder of the temple, did not attempt to amend, alter, or add to what the man of God had in God's name, David, commanded, but he closely adhered to that and used his authority to have that duty observed. A good lesson for pastors and elders today. Well, we're encouraged by Solomon's example of faithfulness to see him implementing God's instructions. But our salvation rests from Christ's greater faithfulness. It results from Christ's greater faithfulness. As he fulfilled the mission God had given him to redeem us from our sins. You think of Jesus' great words on the night of his arrest. He prayed to the Father in John 17, 4. I have glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And surely I hope you know that Jesus came into the world with a definite mission from the Father, a specific work that he was to do, and he did it. He did it faithfully, the blessing of which would be the atonement of our sins and our entry into eternal life. And then before he died on the cross, what were his words? It is finished. And he was fulfilling, it's John 19.30, and he was fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Isaiah 53, 10 to 11. Jesus was faithful to that eternal covenant made with the Father and the Holy Spirit, the result are the blessings of his kingdom and our salvation. Now you see, we too then should cultivate a similar fidelity to God's word so that Christ's work will continue to bear fruit in the conversion of sinners. Now it was after Solomon had displayed this fidelity, this faithfulness in the worship of the temple that we read the concluding comment that I mentioned earlier, the one that sums up the whole temple building project. Thus was accomplished all the work of Solomon from the day the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid until it was finished, so the house of the Lord was completed, verse 16. Now again, it's telling that it's only after the worship in the temple has been established according to God's word that the work could be considered complete. 
We likewise do not finish building a church when its physical structure is built and provided for, but only when its ministries are arranged according to God's word. Andrew Stewart comments, all the blessings that Solomon enjoyed are to be seen in this light. God had promised that he would give Solomon wisdom and wealth to build a temple for his worship. To have taken these blessings from God and then to have used them for godless ends would have forfeited any hope of continuing in God's blessing. Well, he was faithful and God did bless him. It was his worship in accordance with God's word that is the foundation of the blessing of the nation and his own riches and power. Now, we're living in a time when conventional Christian thinking assumes that to carefully establish biblical teaching in our worship, to to really proclaim the word of God, to exposit the text carefully and then to carefully observe it and, and, and let that be seen in our worship and ministry. If we do that, we're told this all the time, the church will lose its cultural relevance if we do that. Is that right? We find a counterexample in the blessings that God sovereignly poured out on Solomon's reign in response to this fidelity, according to his word, in worship and ministry. You know, if we're going to proclaim a sovereign God, we should act as if there is a sovereign God. And surely he will supernaturally bless. This is true in our families. It's true in all of our lives. It is definitely true in the life of the church. We will not lack relevance We will not lack supernatural influence if we rely upon God and manifest that reliance by obedience to his word. Well, speaking of Solomon's wealth, we come to the final point here. He wraps up the account with a description of the kingdom's prosperity. We've seen Solomon's industry, his piety, his fidelity, now his prosperity and and we're told here of a joint venture with Hiram the king of Tyre on a great trading venture verses 17 and 18 then Solomon went to Ezion Geber and Eloth on the shore of the sea in the land of Edom and Hiram sent to him by the hand of his servants ships and servants familiar with the sea now Eloth was and basically is today an Israelite naval base at the far northern tip of the Red Sea, at the, on the very end of the Gulf of Aqaba. This is not the Mediterranean Sea. This is the Red Sea. Look at your Israelite map that comes all the way up to this place on the southern side, southeastern part of Israel. And from this place, trade could be extended along the eastern shore of Africa to Arabia and as far away as India. And Solomon is able to build the fleet, but he has no one to sail it. it it's, it's well known that there, are no, there is no hall of fame of Israelite mariners, as Jonah shows. Uh, the, the sea is an image of chaos in the Bible. They weren't, but, but Hiram, he's a Phoenician. They're the best sailors of the ancient world. And so Solomon gets the ship, and Hiram sends the sailors. That's what the organization is here. And they went to Ophir, verse 18, together with the servants of Solomon and brought from there 450 talents of gold and brought it to King Solomon. Well, Ophir, that name may trigger something in your mind. It's celebrated for its exceptionally pure gold. The gold of Ophir was particularly great wealth, appears throughout the Old Testament. We actually don't know where it is. Uh, Some would argue that it's in India. I think the the scholarly uh, consensus would be in southern Arabia. 
But what we do know is how Solomon's attributes combined to, and contributed to this financial success and the rich provision for his kingdom. It was a result of his industry. And because he was a man of fidelity, he could make agreements with others and they were willing to join into them with him. Ultimately, it reflected God's blessing on his piety. And most prominently, Scripture ascribes Solomon's financial success, the great riches that result from God's grace. Remember back in chapter 1 when God told Solomon, pray for whatever you want, and he prayed for discernment, wisdom. And God said, you know, if you, uh, you could have asked me for riches and long life and military victories. You didn't. You asked for the right thing, discernment and wisdom. So I'm not only going to give you discernment and wisdom, I will give you long life, military power, and I will give you riches. It was God who ultimately had done this in his life. And it was God's kingdom that was being adorned with glory through the riches of Solomon and the building projects his wealth financed. Well, in speaking of the eternal kingdom that he came to build, Jesus said, someone greater than Solomon is here. And like Solomon in his industry, Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Matthew sixteen eighteen, And he showed fidelity in performing all the Father had sent him to do. He founded that reign foretold in Daniel six twenty six. His kingdom shall never be destroyed. Of his dominion there shall be no end. And like Solomon, Jesus has launched a great trading enterprise. And you know who his partners are? They are us. He has a great trading enterprise in the gospel witness of his people. I think of Jesus' parable of the minas where he spoke of before going away, he gave to each of his servants ten minas. That's a unit of currency, roughly about six months' wages. It's a lot of money. Now, in the parable of the talents, better known in Matthew's gospel, everybody's given something different. You have your talents, you have your talents, and you're to use them in that way. In the parable of the minas, every church member is given the same resource. It's a reference to the gospel. The parable of the talents talks about our, our, our abilities, our talents. But the parable of the minus is him saying, I'm going to give you the gospel. And here's what he says, Luke 19, 13, engage in business until I come. That's what we're told. We all individually and together share the gospel. And like the ships of Solomon sailing for distant Ophir, we are to engage in gospel commerce for the enrichment of his kingdom, knowing that Jesus will say, well done, good servant, to all of those who are profitable in the gathering of souls into salvation. Revelation twenty-one twenty-four foretells that the kings of the earth will bring their glory into Christ's eternal kingdom city. You see, that is the yield of gospel evangelism and missions that takes place now. What a privilege we have to display like Solomon some industry, some piety, and some fidelity, which are perfectly seen in our Lord Jesus in order that by God's grace and through, yes, our labors, the prosperity of his reign will give him glory forever and ever. Amen. Father, we thank you for the way that we look upon these ancient episodes and we see straight lines to the Lord Jesus and then to us. 
Help us to emulate Solomon's virtues. Help us to be builders like Solomon. But not as if this world was all that there is. Oh, Lord, we do desire temporal things, even though they are not eternal. Things that are good and will reflect your goodness. But, Lord, our real and high privilege is that we, together with your son, are building up his kingdom, of which we ourselves have been made citizens by your grace. We pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.